Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we're talking about gardening and how to grow your own food here in San Diego. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. One of San Diego's gardening gurus, Nan Sturman, joins us with advice on when to plant fruits and vegetables. To grow vegetables, summer, spring and summer vegetables outside, temperatures have to be consistently 50 degrees or warmer overnight. Plus, Nan will answer your gardening questions and we'll talk about how recent flooding may impact what you can harvest. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The annual Keepers of the Culture event returns to the San Diego History Center on Saturday. Organized in collaboration with the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art, it's a celebration of prominent black leaders in the community who are shaping culture. Here to talk more about this event and its importance to the community is Gaidi Finney. He's the executive director of the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art. Gaidi, welcome back to Midday. I know it's been a while since we talked, but, you know, we're both busy doing things, you know, so it's always good to hear your voice and also to be interviewed by you. Likewise, it's great to have you on. So, I mean, it's been six years since the first ever Keepers of the Culture. How did it get started? You know, our, our job is to bring art and culture to the community, and we don't want those people who are doing things to be forgotten. So what we've, what we've decided to do was to get those people who are still alive, that are doing things, to contribute to the culture and honor them while they are alive. We've honored Harold Brown and Chuck Ambers, Willie Morrow, Dr. Jack Kimbrough. We've honored Don Blevins, Manuelita Brown, Makeda uh, Dredd Cheenham, and Kamal Kenyatta. We've also honored Common Ground Theater. Starla Lewis, Dr. Robert and Mrs. Ardell Matthews. He's also honored Alice Cooper-Smith, Nathan East, Calvin Manson, and, and, and Andrea Rushing. And also Ken Anderson, Jean Corbett, we Elliot Lawrence, Dr. John Warren, and Honorable Leon Williams. And guess what? what? This year, we're honoring <laughs> Supervisor Monica Montgomery Stepp and also Vernon Sukumu and also the R&B singing group Satisfaction, which, I mean, they have such a following because they've not been together in years. And so when they come out, people are there. So it is a packed house, a wonderful event that's coming. Yeah, the, the museum has worked with the San Diego History Center to organize this tribute, like you said. Uh, what has the partnership meant these past couple of years? 
You know, it's a funny thing you ask because I have, as a museum without walls, we have worked with all the major museums in San Diego because we try to bring art to places where it can be held. For instance, you know, if you have expensive art, million dollar art, you just can't put it anywhere. So we work with a lot of the major museums and the most, the most fun and the most I don't know, easy one to work with, if you will. The most com compatible one with us is the San Diego History Center. Why that is, I don't know, I think it has to do with Bill and his staff, but, you know, I've worked with MCA and SDMA and, and man, all of them, the Vet Veterans Museum and Menge, all of those. But I really do love working with that that staff. They're very, very um, capable and work with us so well that I like doing it. So, you know, we... And we do so much. You know that we've got also the Black Arts and Cultural District. The city designated us as the managers of that. So that's also something that we've been doing the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I remember I actually moderated yes, the, the event a few a couple of years ago. During that event, the honorees were mostly artists. Uh, and this year you're celebrating people who do various work in the community. So b before we get into each honoree, what's the process behind selecting them each, each year? Yeah, that's the board. The board gets together and talks about who it is we want to honor. And then we have a vote and pick uh, the people we want to honor. Yeah. You know, how do you go about choosing the honorees? How does the board do that? What's the criteria? Well, you know, a lot of our board is connected to the community. And uh, some of them have been lifelong residents. But we look at all the different aspects of culture and what people have done. And there's quite a few people. So we've been doing this, let's get six years. And it's just how we do it with our board. We we bring in a number of people, everybody gets a recommend. And then we choose what three or four people we want to do each year. Because it's, it's you know, we do a nice honor uh, a trophy that goes with it to honor them. And it takes a lot of work to do this thing. So I'm proud of what we do. And I'm happy to honor these folks. And I want to talk more about the honorees, and I'll start with Monica Montgomery Stepp. Uh, two years ago, she secured the unanimous vote by the city to create the San Diego Black Arts and Culture District in Encanto. Um, as you mentioned, the museum was designated to really look over the district. What has that meant for Black artists and creatives to really have this space? When we first did this and came on the news some two years ago, we just wanted to have something called a, a Black Arts District. We wanted someplace called, as they call it, the spot where Black people could go. Because as even as a resident here, when when guests come, I just don't know where to take them. I used to like know where, where do we take Black people in this town? And it's right. been that way for 30 years. People have wanted it, really wanted it. And so when we were designated to, to do this, we began the work of making this a possibility. And right now, I could tell you right now with all confidence, you can talk and people say to you, have you been to the Black Arts District? Or we haven't, there's the Black Arts District this, there's a Black Arts District that. So it does exist now. And I owe it to the Black Arts and Cultural Committee uh, who has been spearheading that and advising the museum on how to make this work. So that Black Arts and Culture Committee that sits every Tuesday, every third Tuesday and meet with members of the community, artists, business people, all of that. I think we were we got a lot of ways to go. It's not that. It's no question we have a long ways to go to do this because it's because you know what? It's an art-led project, right? But it's also an economic uh, development project because you need lighting, you need wider streets, and you need you know, housing. You want people to buy in and bring in other arts uh, organizations and dance and music and theater and all that. We want to bring that into the community. So we got ways to go. And thank you, Monica Montgomery, for establishing that with us so we can keep it going. So I'm really, I'm really grateful to her. And is that why you all have chosen to honor her this time around? No, no, it's it's just due. It's due. It's got no, no, it's due. She's she's been a stalwart in the community. I'll tell you one day I was going to do an event once 
at the Malcolm X library and I pulled up in my car and was, there she was cleaning up the, 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 the area by herself on a Saturday morning. I said, look at that. Now I was, I mean, made me a believer just by herself cleaning up. This is, she said, I got to do this stuff. I said, man, you know, probably nobody knows you do that sort of thing, but I saw it with my own eyes. She's really special. Yeah. And going back to the Black Arts and Culture District, over the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about the flooding impacts there. Um, how's the community continuing to come together in this difficult time? Yeah, you know, that, I mean, San Diego, like I said, some community said it is something crazy in San Diego. San Diego, what did it do? It said it rained. <laughs> it right. never does. I, don't, <laughs> I mean, it was a shock to everybody. So my heart goes out to all those people. And also this, the San Diego Black Arts and uh Culture district did get affected. The park where we have Marie Whitman Park has had a lot of uh, problems with it. Some of the housing, Second Chance had issues, but we've got a lot of help and people are pulling together to help us. We've had to um, pivot a little bit on some of the events that we have to, to take them out of the park that we're going to be in the cultural district until it gets right. But it's coming back. It'll be there. But right now we just have to st stay together, bend, uh, work together and get that community back. Yeah, that's um, that's uh, something, and uh, we hope to have the community back uh, to where it was soon. Uh, you're also honoring Rhythm and Blues Group Satisfaction. What can you tell us about them and the mark they're leaving on San Diego's vibrant music scene? You know, it's funny. I know a couple of them just throughout history, Floyd Smith and that. And he's with the Fifth Dimension as well. Um, but they, when they come out, the people who have heard of them come to support them. The last time I think they did a concert, maybe eight years ago, it was sold out. You couldn't even get in the door. So I don't know much about them. I'm not a, a uh, resident, I mean, a lifelong resident of San Diego. But from what I hear, they bring the people. It should be a fun event. And I really, and, and because of who they are and all, and they have lots of people from the community in the band itself, in the group. So it should be exciting to see them and have them being honored. And they're going to sing and play. So that should be wonderful. And Vernon Sukumu is a longtime activist, one of your personal heroes, too. Uh, he's being honored. So can you tell me more about him? Well, he's been a stalwart in the community for, I don't know, it was, like I said, before I even got here to Minnesota, I mean, to San Diego. I studied about him in Minnesota and came here uh, and met him. And, you know, the story, I was coming out here to take the uh, professional responsibility bar exam. And this was on a Friday. Um, and so when I saw him, he said, well, we have, I've got these books by Rosa Parks and I'm going to go up and hang out with her and she'll sign. She signed books for me. And I did that thinking, man, oh my God, that was the greatest day of my life, right? Mm -hmm. The next day I got back to take the professional exam, exam and guess what? It was Friday and I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I missed it by spending the day with Rosa Parks. So come on. Come on. It made, uh, it, it made I, the trip I, worth it. It, it made it. I mean, I mean, who do you tell that story, the professional responsibility test that you missed? It? <laughs> you got it wrong. <laughs> Oops. Uh, but right. um, yeah, but I had a chance to spend a day with Vernon Sukumu and uh, Rosa Parks that day. She signed a book for my son and he he protects it like it's gold. Takes it <laughs> everywhere he goes. Now, with Sukumu, he, you know, as I mentioned, he's a longtime activist, but um, what kind of activist is he? He's human rights. He's he's so many things. Can you tell me a bit about his activism? I think he was more part of the Pan-African movement, the nationalist movement with the, uh, what was it called? Milana Ron Karanga, who created the Kwanzaa celebration and, and the US organization. He was part of that group of people. And as was I, by the way, back in the 
late 60s, believe it or not. So this these organizations that created Kwanzaa were nationwide. And so they taught us a lot of the same doctrine, if you will. So we all studied this around the country during the Black National Movement back in the late 60s. And I'm sure Vernon Sukuma was part of that movement. Like I, he, he was a, he was a big leader here during that that torrid time of the 60s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You touched on this earlier, uh, but how has San Diego changed over the years when it comes to Black culture and community? When I came here in 93, I think, that's when I moved here from San, from Minneapolis, it seemed to have much more Black culture. It was Black radio stations, and I think even the community in the southeastern San Diego was more Black. And that has gentrified quite a bit as has San Diego being a military town, black people really are all over the place. There's not a really black community, if you will, whereas it used to be. And the result of this not having a black community is you, there's a loss in terms of how you relate to each other, how when you see each other, whether you eat together, whether you, you can go to a black church and see a lot of black people, but many times uh, because we're so spread out, you don't, you don't have a feeling of black community. And that's one of the things that the black cultural district does is give us a better sense of community. Now we're looking forward to, to, to affect that change was what San Diego would be like in the future. We're, we're trying to affect that by what we do with the black cultural district and with the African-American museum of fine arts. So whereas it has changed, we're trying to make sure that as it changes, the black folks in San Diego have a, a, a way to communicate, to entertain, and to enjoy their culture. Well, what happened? I mean, where did the you know the black radio, black nightclubs? Um, you, you know, know I, what I, I happened? I don't know. I, that I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, the population just moved around, and they, those things they don't exist anymore. But they need leadership like us to bring it back. So whatever happened to them, I can't tell you. I don't know. But I know that one thing, we're bringing it back. There you go. So how can we continue to celebrate and preserve the artistic and cultural work of elders and, and, and what's happening in the community now? Yeah, I think just follow us. We have we both we have the two websites. We have our website, sdaamfa.org. That's the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art. And also the Sac San Diego Black Arts and Culture District has its own website as well. So you can follow those there and, and, and participate. And so coming up soon, we have the Herlin celebrating the Black women in filmmaking on March 22nd. We have the Power of Poetry and, and, and a Mixer on April 19th. We have the Stop and Listen Music of the Diaspora on May 18th. We have our big celebration of Black music in June, June 29th, and that's with Lyrical Groove, Jim Anel, Deneen Wilburn, Rebecca Jade, and the musical students of the Heartbeat Academy. All that's coming up this year. Yeah, so we, we're smoking. I see. <laughs> Lots to get plugged into. You know, before I go, I, I got to ask, you know, the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art celebrating Black history 365 days a year. Um, talk to me about why it's important to honor Black history, not just during this month, but really every day. Because if you don't know your past, you can't relate to your future. It really is. It's like one of those things that, you know, we live in, it seems to be we live in a time when a lot of these things are just being taken off the, the, the education. They're not teaching about it. Um, you, you see a lot of racist activity. The Black Lives Movement had to, had to come about to change things. All this stuff, you know, that Black Lives Movement, I think is kind of waning now, believe it or not. It's, it's not the same kind of interest in it, right? But we 
won't stop. We will keep our Black culture alive 365 days a year, just as you said. And that's what the San Diego Black Cultural Arts and Black Cultural District will do. And that's what the museum will do as well. We will keep it alive, knowing of its importance. I've been speaking with Gaiety Finney, Executive Director of the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art. Keepers of the Culture will take place at the San Diego History Center this Saturday at 6 p.m. Doors open at 5 and the event is free. Gaiety, thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome and I miss talking to you, so let's stay in touch. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Coming up, Beth Agamondo explores bugs and the culinary arts. One of the things that I try to employ when introducing people to edible insects is thinking about what food do you really love? You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Uh, question for you. Would you eat scorpion kimchi? How about cricket hummus? while you have an opportunity to try out both with a bug banquet happening on San Diego State University's campus tomorrow. KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando is actually a fan of edible insects. She spoke with chef Joseph Yoon of Brooklyn Bugs and food scientist Shang Shi Liu, associate professor at SDSU, about the event and the benefits of eating bugs. Take a listen. So there is going to be a bug banquet at San Diego State, and this is a really fascinating thing to me. And one thing I'm curious about with both of you is, do you remember the first time you ever ate a bug or an insect? Joseph, do you want to start? <laughs> I don't actually remember the first time I ate an insect because I've always been a curious eater, and I've eaten virtually anything that's been presented to me with respect as food. Not as like a dare or anything, but truth be told, it may actually be the, the agave worm at the bottle of a tequila bottle, <laughs> perhaps as well. I also don't remember the exact age, but when I grew up as a kid, I was from China. So my hometown is uh, Sichuan province uh, in the southwest of uh, China. And we do have a few like edible insects uh, in the region, like a bamboo weevil, I think a silkworm pupae, as well as uh, the cicada uh, nymphs. Uh, so I did have experiences growing up eating insects. And when did both of you kind of become interested in this as like a bigger issue, as something that you really wanted to focus on and try to raise awareness about? Tangshi, you want to start? So when I grew up as a kid, I'm always kind of interested in entomology. I actually wanted to become an entomologist. It didn't happen, so I ended up becoming a food scientist, uh, which is also a, a passion for me. Then I also started interested in this uh, food sustainability issues. Uh, so I actually get to combine my two interests, bugs and uh, food science, and actually use them as a, you know, a more sustainable way of getting uh, high quality proteins. My interest with insects, or rather cooking and eating with insects, started from an art project when I was approached to cook insects to help conquer a fear of insects. 
And then I went down the wormhole. I did my research and found the UN's FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization's report, Edible Insects, Future Prospects for Food and Feed Security. And when I began to realize that edible insects and insect agriculture can have an impact on food security, on environmentalism, sustainability, health and nutrition, workforce activation and livelihoods, this gave me a tremendous sense of inspiration and motivation. And ever since I started, uh, it, it has actually entirely changed my life. And I'm, I'm now on this path for a little over six years now. So here in the U.S., the idea of eating bugs is probably, it's probably a hurdle you have to overcome a bit. I mean, I think there are other countries where it's much more commonplace. And how do you kind of tackle some of the ideas or misconceptions that people may have? One of the big hurdles is in changing the perception of insects, which are regularly thought of as a pest. And so being able to take these negative ideas and then somehow try to get people to consider these insects, these pests as food, is yet another hurdle. And one of the really big ways that I have utilized to help change the perception and hopefully create the behavioral change is not to focus on the science with great respect to my scientists, colleagues, and counterparts, but I focus on the culinary and gastronomical properties to think of insects as something delicious. Over 2,000 species of edible insects with wildly different flavor profiles, textures, and functionality that we can prepare absolutely deliciously if we have the culinary acumen and the know-how and it's sustainable and nutrient dense. And then I follow up with the science. And so that's largely been my approach with, with uh, how I introduce people to edible insects. This is exactly why we are trying to do this event. So we did a survey before and we found that yeah, the willingness uh, in the US to eat insects is not that great. And we identified unfamiliarity with edible insect and the disgust factor to be some of the biggest hurdles. But at the same time, in 2019, when we first hosted the event, we did a pre-event and the post-event survey. And we found that uh, through this kind of uh, cooking and tasting demonstrations, it really changes people's perceptions on edible insects and promoted their willingness to try them. And also, we are also going to be talking about why should we eat insects, address their environmental benefits, their nutritional values, the opportunities they can bring to the culinary art. So I think that can probably also help people accept edible insects as a food. Give us a little bit of that science as to what are the benefits of using insects for food? How does that benefit us or the environment? What do they offer? Like the edible insects, they are known to have a lower environmental footprint as compared to some of the conventional livestock. For example, they require much less feed, water, and the land to farm. And during the process, they produce much less uh, greenhouse gases. At the same time, they have a really good nutritional values. Uh, for example, the high protein content uh, and uh, unsaturated fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, minerals with great bioavailability. There are studies showing that the bioavailability of iron uh, in some of the mealworms is actually higher than the sirloin beef. 
And also, like I would say, insects is probably the only animal source food that can provide dietary fibers、uh, because of their exoskeleton. So there are many many health benefits associated with、uh, insect consumption as well.、Uh, so it's really a superfood if we think about it. Yeah, I think one of the great potentials and innovation around insect agriculture is that it represents a pot- the the potential to have a regenerative circular ag system. And so we can address organic waste management and feed organic waste to black soldier fly larvae, mitigating it from going into our landfills. And then we have also passed legislation in America and the EU to feed the black soldier fly larvae as livestock feed for pet food and aquaculture. And so again, we're decreasing the deforestation of the Amazon that's being utilized for animal feed and for pet food. And then to close this loop, if we're creating metric tons of this larvae, a byproduct is something called frass or the excrement of the insects, and it's mixed together with the exuviae, which is the exoskeletons, and this is incredible as a bioorganic fertilizer. So there's so much potential and innovation happening around insect agriculture, and the idea of eating insects. Really helps to spark the curiosity and interest, but there's a wide world of potential that exists as well. So, for you as a chef, what are kind of the challenges that you see? And talk a little bit just about kind of the different kinds of insects and how they inspire you to different meals or plates of food. <laughs> What's been really amazing is just to see people's reaction and their initial thought of what they expect insects to be. And for a lot of people that don't have a lot of knowledge or the culture behind it, they expect insects to taste horrible. <laughs> so that actually works in my favor because as a chef, I take great pride in making food taste delicious. And so one of the things that I try to employ when introducing people to edible insects is thinking about what food do you really love. And then I think about how I can bugify that dish by incorporating insect protein into your favorite meals. When people think about what insects might look like, they might think like, "Oh, am I going to eat like a whole bowl full of crickets?" And it's like, "No. How about if we were to make a cricket bolognese and make a delicious gravy, this sauce incorporating cricket powder?" We don't even have to see it. And if you're a big fan of burgers, what if we were to make like a black bean burger with crickets, both chopped up and the powder? What a great possibility and potential to be so inspired to find the, all these new ingredients and think about how we can reimagine it into familiar foods. The only limitations that we have with insect protein. Is really our own imagination, and typically it's been fascinating to find a person who's like, my friend dragged me to your event. I didn't think I would eat it, and I tried the cricket gougere, so French cheese puff, and they have this look of surprise. <laughs> it tastes like food. It actually tastes good, and then something really fascinating happens as a result of that. They want to try something buggier, so I'm luring them in, 
And they're like, okay, chef, let me try something with a, where I could see the bugs. And maybe they'll try the black ants with guacamole. And black ants have formic acid as a defense mechanism, which gives it an acidic flavor profile. So it pairs perfectly with something like guacamole. And so I think that's what we really love to do is just giving people the opportunity, but never shaming anyone or pressuring people to do it. Like I, I, I'm not a bug pusher. I'm not out there like trying to push people to eat them. I'm an educator, an advocate, an activist who's actively just trying to give people the option and the knowledge so that they can make the decision themselves. And Changshi, what can people expect from these two events that are happening uh, this week? This afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m., we will have the Edible Insect Symposium in which we'll have several speakers uh, talking about different aspects of uh, edible insects, talking about their nutritional values, their environmental benefits, and their uh, potentials in the culinary world. Then on Friday, we'll have the bug banquet in which we'll be like uh, offering uh, people delicious food uh, that features edible insects. And Joseph, do you have a favorite bug that you like to cook with or a favorite dish? Among my favorites are crickets, commonly known as the gateway bug, and mealworms for their incredible versatility. The black ants, which I mentioned because of their, their delicious flavor and surprising pop. But all in all, I would have to say my hands down unequivocal grand champion insect for me to cook and eat is the cicada. And this year presents an incredible opportunity because we have the convergence of the brood 13 and 19 cicadas that come out every 17 and 13 years. And this occurrence is happening for the first time in 221 years. And so I'm really excited to, to be able to go out into the field and continue my field research and culinary research around, uh, around these periodical cicadas. And Joseph, people shouldn't just go out in their backyard and grab a bug out of their garden and pop it in their mouth, right? Um, what, what do you recommend to people who are curious about this and want to maybe try cooking with insects? Correct. One should not go in their backyard and just pick an insect because of the risk of pathogens and contaminants. And, and so I think like really being responsible in where you get them from. And so we're very happy to, to work with incredible vendors who responsibly source the insects. And there's one very obvious website who's a great supporter. Edibleinsects.com has a great reliable resource for a lot of different insects. And then also uh, Entomo Farms that are based up in Ontario, Canada, and Three Cricketeers in Minnesota are some of our favorite and most reliable vendors. All right. Well, I want to thank you both very much for talking about bugs. Wait, 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 Beth. Will you join us for either of the events, but really for the bug tasting on Friday? I would love. Absolutely. Oh. Of course. Absolutely. I am so happy to hear that you will join us. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Brooklyn Bugs chef Joseph Yoon and SDSU Associate Professor of Nutrition and Food Scientist Shang Shi Lu. The Bug Banquet is tomorrow at noon, but you need to register first. Information for that is at kpbs.org. 
Coming up, we'll hear from author Susan Orlean about her writing and our relationship to animals. You're almost more human when you are relating to a creature than when you're relating to other people. It's very unselfconscious. You just are who you are. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Writer Susan Orlean has been writing for The New Yorker for more than three decades and rose to fame when her book, The Orchid Thief, inspired the Spike Jones movie adaptation. She's the author of more than a dozen nonfiction books, including the library book about the 1986 fire in the Los Angeles Central Library and On Animals, a collection of her essays about creatures of all kinds and our relationship with them. She's part of the Writer's Symposium by the Sea this week and will be interviewed with Nick Hornby on Friday. She spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation. So in the book On Animals, we have a collection of long-form essays about animals, but I wanted to start at the very beginning with your introduction. You give us this little taste of your own fascination with animals, not just pets, but definitely pets. Can you tell us about your lifelong love of animals and why beasts of all kinds are these topics that you keep returning to? I think um, at the basis of this is the kind of human fascination with aliens. I think it's since the beginning of time, there's been this curiosity about what would it be like if people from another planet landed here and would we be able to talk to them? And what if they were like us, but not quite like us? And what if we could communicate, but not in the conventional ways that we're used to communicating? Well, we already have that since (laughs) animals sort of provide us with this life form that you certainly know you can communicate with, but not in the traditional way that you communicate with humans. It's also invariably a reflection when I write about animals, but I, I think from the very beginning, it it brings out something very human in our interaction with animals. And you're almost more human when you are relating to a creature than when you're relating to other people. It's very unselfconscious. You just are who you are. So from the time I was a kid, I just always loved every kind of animal both the typical pets of dogs and cats and hamsters and mice, but also uh, I loved livestock and I loved wild animals. So this was the entire range. I love the way animals look. I love the way they feel when you touch them. I love them on that totally sensory level. I, I just think it tells you a lot about being a person when you relate to animals. 
This book spans decades of work. And I'm wondering if there's a story that over time you've had the most questions or comments about. The big surprise for me probably was the story I wrote about having chickens. And I wasn't even convinced that I should do the story. I had chickens. I loved them. I thought about them a lot. I talked about them a lot. But I didn't imagine writing a story about it. And my editor convinced me that this was a great subject, the rise of backyard chickens and what seemed to be a bit of a new found passion for keeping chickens, which is pretty funny when you think about it. (laughs) So I wrote this story about my experience, why I ended up with chickens, what it was like having them. And the reaction was a complete surprise. Namely, it was as if I had tapped in to some massive desire on the part of everyone I knew to have chickens. And people simply couldn't get enough about having chickens and how I got them and what was it like and could they have them and where could they keep them? But it also fit the whole point of the story, which was that there was a very particular reason that at this moment in time, people were yearning to have small livestock. I I don't think it morphed into people wanting cattle or a, a big herd of sheep. It was very specific to chickens. And there was a you know, fascinating kind of history connected to it. Now, this one is a very different story. The Lady and Her Tigers. This is a story uh, about a woman who lived in this otherwise quiet town in America with a large collection of actual tigers. Can you talk about how you first came about covering this story? This was uh, really one of my favorite stories to write. There was a little news report that I happened across one day that in this suburb in New Jersey, which is sort of between Newark and Trenton, that in the middle of the day, uh, a tiger was seen walking through the middle of the town. That in itself was, of course, pretty amazing. But more strangely, no one could identify who the tiger belonged to. And you kind of feel like there wouldn't be that many places tigers might come from and end up in the middle of a suburb. Lo and behold, it is revealed that there's a woman in the town who has 27 tigers that she keeps as pets. She didn't have permits for them, and you would never be able to get permits for them. It's 100% illegal. And it was an insane story. It was both, you know, just an absurd notion that there's a woman living in suburbia with almost 30 tigers. It was also fascinating because I began looking into how would you acquire tigers? And (laughs) to my shock 
and dismay, it's incredibly easy to get tigers. Arguably easier to get a tiger than a French bulldog these days. Wow. So it was just it, it, it was just an endlessly interesting story to me and and talking about, you know, our relationship to these exotic animals that really no one should have even one, let alone 27. I want to shift gears and talk just a little bit about the library book. This is an astonishing book that's about the massive 1986 fire in the Los Angeles Central Library, but it's also about the history of the library system in L.A. and the very strange characters who've passed through the ranks, but also about other lost archives. It struck me as a massive undertaking of research. What did you want that book to mean? It was a massive amount of research, and part of what caused it to be that, to answer your bigger question, is that I was trying to understand why the story drew me so much and that Mm -hmm. that was what the book would mean. Why do we feel so affected in such a deep way at the destruction of a library more than we would feel about City Hall burning or, uh, you know, many other parallel institutions that we might imagine being destroyed. I don't think you have the same feeling that you have when you imagine books being destroyed, a library being destroyed. And that's what propelled me from the beginning. Why do books mean so much to us? Why do libraries mean so much? And as a consequence, why did this fire affect people so deeply, including me? And ultimately, it was a book about memory and what memory means to us, both the collective memory, which is what a library really is, and the act of creating a book, which is to make a permanent record of thought process. So you're you're sort of outsourcing memory (laughs) into this form of paper and ink. Uh, And we've been doing this literally since the beginning of time. So there's something really, really, really human about the act of creating books and the act of creating libraries. I'm wondering if over the last 25, 30 years, uh, throughout your career, if you have felt the media landscape change for the kind of long narrative essays that you write, the kind of books you write. Um, You've likely seen magazine culture change dramatically since the Internet. But what about nonfiction writing in general? It's a different world. It really is. Sometimes I'm writing a memoir right now, and when I'm writing about the early days of my career and thinking about even the like the fact that I used to write on a typewriter and we would literally cut and paste stories, and then desktop publishing came, and you know, now obviously the internet has completely changed the media landscape. I feel like the interest in long-form narrative absolutely is there. I I don't see 
anything suggesting that people aren't interested in stories that unfold in a a, a really expansive way. We're all used to the idea of the attention economy and people wanting things quick and short and flashed up on a screen and scrollable and all of that. But I I think that the counterpoint actually is that you get a certain amount of stuff now telegraphed to you very, very quickly. It almost means that you look forward to that chance to really sink into a story. I have one more question about craft. Um, you're talking about these expansive stories and most of these things you dive into because there's an element of mystery to them. I'm wondering how you know when a story is finished, especially when sometimes there's not a tidy resolution or an endpoint. Actually, it's it's I won't say it's a big problem. It's a big part of the writing process that really matters, especially because it's so rare that you truly have a conclusion or hmm. a, a neat, tidy end to your story. Um, and most of my stories, most of my books really don't have a definitive conclusion. Um, I didn't solve the mystery of the library fire. I never saw a ghost orchid. All of these events that were meant to be the the kind of culmination of my work didn't happen. How I knew I was done, though, was that it's more of an internal clock of feeling that I've learned my subject well and I'm ready to tell it to readers. I'm not looking for that tidy end because life isn't like that. And most stories don't have that packaging where every loose end is tied up. It's really more um, on the writer's side, that sensation of thinking I'm ready to tell the story. And that is just a gut feeling. It's a moment of thinking I'm ready. I'm ready to tell this. And I see the narrative coming to its conclusion, even though it's not with a neat ending. That was writer Susan Orlean, author of The Orchid Thief and On Animals, speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Orlean will appear at Point Loma Nazarene University Friday at 7 p.m. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.